Hi, my name is Thomas, and I'm going to tell you a story. Before we get started, note that this is episode four, so if you're just joining us, I'd recommend pausing here and starting from the beginning. Also, since this is a new story set in a fantastical land, it may not be the best experience to multitask while you listen. We are recording in our respective homes, safely distanced as the world finds its way out of a pandemic. There is no music, and there are no sound effects. But, if you like, you can imagine that we are alone, you and I, in a pale desert, a merciless tundra, with only the occasional beat of hooves to disturb that great, vast emptiness. This is the Oa Oligar. Silence is as alien as anything in the aftermath of a catastrophe. Gemogen is the first to break her eyes away from Yochi. She drops the eye of Bakya's shield to dangle from around her neck again, paces over Tsitsasi, and kneels beside the dying horse. Yochi can see intestines spilling out of the great wound in her belly. He gags and forces his attention back to Gemogen. She places one hand on Sasi's muzzle, pressing her fingers into the coarse fur above the animal's jaw, and places her other hand over her own face. Her body trembles. She sobs once. Then she stills, and tears stream quietly down her cheeks and over her pale fingers. Naraset pushes themselves to their feet and limps over to Golgik, still visibly distressed. Katu looks from Yochi to Gemogen, then casts his eyes over to the blackened piece of wood that Yochi had split from the burning golem with his spear. He crosses to this strange trophy, bends down, and gingerly lifts the remnant to inspect it. That leaves the cartographer, looking at Yochi with a strange mix of consternation and curiosity. A heavy thunk makes Yochi jump. Gemogen stands over Tsasi, motionless as a statue, her bow held at an angle by her hip, her other hand frozen above it in the moment of release. The fletched end of an arrow protrudes from the horse's skull. The enormous beast shivers one last time, then goes still. So, I think sleep is out of the question tonight. She turns to face the group and wipes her cheek across the sleeve of her tunic. Yochi, how did you know something was coming? Katu looks up from the burnt wood and Nariset turns. All eyes are once again on Yochi. The warmth from the small campfire feels very hot against Yochi's face all of a sudden. He didn't like being put on the spot. He wasn't used to it. He was just an ox groom, not a high priest or a secret noble or a warrior nomad. Yochi. I... I just felt something. Who are you talking to? Who wants you dead? Oh, what was the point of lying? They were just going to think he was crazy anyway. There's this thing that only I can see. 
What thing? What are you saying? Gemogen raises a hand to quiet the others. She steps forward. You can tell us, Yochi. Whatever it is may have saved our lives. Yochi thinks of the bells, and the snowfisher, and his village, and wonders how true this is. It started when I was a boy. The first time I saw him, I was eleven. It was... It was... The night your village burned. Yochi nods. He appears to me just before something terrible happens. When the Ustaka raided Barun Vase, when the storm of three summers flooded the Outriders' quarter, and all of those grooms died. He pauses. He looks at the bandage around Nerisset's leg, and shame wells up fresh within him. When the snowfisher attacked Nerisset. Yochi's eyes move up to Nerisset's face. They are looking at him with a mixture of horror and confusion. He flinches. The cartographer steps forward. And each time, you've seen someone that no one else could see. So that's four appearances? Gemogen interjects suddenly. Yochi shakes his head. Tonight makes nine. But it's gotten more frequent recently. He was there the day I met you, just before the building collapsed and Satsi threw you. Yochi remembers it vividly. The red-mouthed man standing in the center of the street, the urn that fell from the sky seemingly without reason and smashed upon the pavement. Tsasi's moment of panic, Gemogen's fall, running forward and dragging her back, the broken urn followed by a deluge of collapsing masonry as an entire wall of balconies and terraces peeled away from its poorly constructed wooden skeleton and crashed into the square. A cacophony of splitting stone and screams. Gemogen frowns at Katu. Katu looks back, but he just cocks his head to one side, not sure what Gemogen is thinking. Gemogen looks back at Yochi. While the others appear disturbed, Gemogen seems only curious, as if she discovered a puzzle piece for a different puzzle than the one she was currently working on. You said it was a he. What does he look like? Yochi takes a deep breath. He's a man. Average height, I'd say. Pale skin with dark eyes, and there's... There's blood. At least, I think it's blood. Covering the lower half of his face. Not from a wound, but more like... As if it were eating something. Fresh and wet. So I've always called him, in my head, I mean, I've always called him the Red-Mouthed Man. There is quiet, but for the occasional snap from their fire. It is a long moment that extends into a longer moment, until Yochi can hardly bear it. Finally, Gemogen turns her frown on the priest from Palos again. Katu, have you ever heard of such a thing? Does a flesh-eating ghost appear in any of your archaeo-academic texts? Katu looks rather stunned. He shakes his head slowly, then looks down at the piece of burnt wood in his hand, and jumps. Oh! Oh? Alt echoes as Katu practically bolts towards the covered wagon, climbs up the steps, and disappears into the coach. 
Gemogen frowns after him. She snorts. Well, Yochi, the red-mouthed man seems a tremendously useful spirit, frightening as he may be. Useful? The boy is telling you he's cursed. Nerisset's voice is hoarse. We have no idea what that means, Mapmaker. They rub their hand over the hilt of their palma. Though, I agree it does not have the semblance of a blessing. Gemogen looks down at the ground. Her shoulders rise as she inhales deeply and lets the breath out in a long stream of wind between her lips. I need to think. She turns her head to look at Saucy, then jerks sharply away. We shouldn't let good meat go to waste. Nariset, could I ask you to... I'll make us a proper meal and smoke and cure the rest. I thank you. Gemogen is on the verge of tears again. She takes another deep breath, then paces out of the campsite. Alt starts to move after her, but Nariset quickly extends their polearm to block his path. Leave her be. You're content to watch our leader wander into the woods alone. She can handle herself. Either help me butcher the Yulin more, or go see what's got Katu so excited. The Andrishman doesn't look happy, but he nods. He and Nariset look back at Yochi. Yochi feels raw and exposed, like a shelled animal turned on its back. Even the wagon boy has a dark secret. I really shouldn't be surprised. With that, they begin the unglamorous work of skinning, cleaving, and stripping edible tissue from Tsasi's bones. Gemogen does not return for some time. The cartographer labors silently, while Nariset whispers quiet instructions. Yochi manages to calm Golgik down before joining in the effort. He's grateful that the other two retrain their focus on the task at hand. He has to admit, as far as reactions to learning your traveling companion is followed wherever he goes by a gory omen of doom, it could be worse. Katu remains cloistered in the covered wagon, while the others conduct the breakdown. Yochi hangs flanks of meat over the fire to smoke dry, until the iron rack is laden with bloody slabs. Then, he rolls the barrel of curing salt from the supply wagon, and carefully arranges thinner cuts and wooden troughs of salt, pouring more salt over them before sealing the troughs and returning the narrow wooden chests of precious rations to the cart. He tries not to think of the living, breathing animal to which they owed their next few meals. After an hour or so, there is a rustle of brush, and Gemogen steps back into the firelight. How's it going? Nariset snorts. <laughs> we didn't come prepared to preserve this much meat. We're doing our best, but there's only so much we can eat and store. Gemogen nods. Nariset wipes their bloody hands on a rag and gingerly gets to their feet. Amandral Yanichka. I am so sorry, Gemogen. She was a magnificent animal. They approach Gemogen carefully. Nariset is a little taller and slighter than the mountain Thar, but it was only in this moment that Gemogen looked small and stooped with gravity. Losing a horse is one of the inevitable heartbreaks. 
As she ran, so she vanishes. Katu interrupts with a loud whoop from within the caravan. He nearly falls down the steps in his fervor, not so much excited as manic in his triumph. The living pyre! I can't believe I didn't think of it sooner. A living pyre is mentioned in Haramet's account of Abandon, the first years of the long darkness after the gods disappeared from Cella Celestia. For years afterwards, mourners reported seeing a pyre moving about of its own accord, sometimes attacking those that dared enter the palazon. Gemogen stares at Katu. Isn't that exactly what we just saw? Yochi, yoke the oxen while Nariset finishes cooking. Nariset breathes in relief. We have learned so much already. Whisper City and the temple will be struck from their saddles. Gemogen turns her eyes to Nariset. We are making our way to the Painted Castle tonight. Don't you see what this means? The same sign that haunted Sela Celestia is here, too. Katu's face falls. Now, Gemogen, this is not... And a strange god's parting gift is no trifling matter. Gemogen seems to literally grow in stature. Her face, still lined with sooty marks of grief, is resolute, even vindicated. They are not departed, Katu. It is just as I suspected. If the gods lived here before migrating west, it stands to reason they could have done so again. They are nomadic as we are. Not gone, but lost. We have only to find them. Yochi is boggled. Is that why you brought us here? To find the lost gods? Us? And why not? Why not? Because we're trapped in a cursed veil where nothing grows, separated from civilization by miles of ice and tundra, empty-handed of hunts and preparing to eat your horse. Frustrated, Gemogen turns away from Katu. Yochi, the oxen. Yochi nods. Obediently, he begins to guide the team into position. Gemogen, you have no proof that the gods actually called this place home. We have found no baths, no great halls, and no tokens of Chinchurian jade. He pulls the dark green coin from his collar and holds it aloft. It glints in the firelight, larger than any human-minted currency. The square hole in its center, an inch wide at least. This is proof. We know these coins were used by the gods to exchange favors, to reward angels, and to break disputes. And this is one of the oldest known coins in existence, unearthed only in Cella Celestia. We just heard a bell toll eight times, once for each of the old gods. In 20 pilgrimages, I've never been granted entry to the great halls and orchestras of Cella Celestia. But I intend to be the first to set foot in the castle of the Vale Oase. You may be the leader of this mission, but the Temple Venerate paid for it. It's my job to make sure we don't die out here so that we can report our discovery to Palhyro. Gemogen begins breaking down the Thar tent. If we do not find the castle, I'll concede we've come as far as we can. We've learned enough! Katu's voice drops in anger. Yochi shivers. The priest was normally so lyrical and light in tone. Gemogen freezes and looks at Katu. There is something cold about her, too. A sense of danger vibrates between them like a taut rope. You're both right. Alt's interjection is so unexpected it immediately diffuses the tension in the air. Katu's shoulders drop, and Gemogen's arms relax. We've learned enough to return with honor. We've also learned that we're close to something powerful. 
He begins breaking down one of the other tents. I've no interest in staying here, and I'd rather sleep in a castle than out in the open again. The living pyre! Yochi has an invisible friend that warns of its approach, and my symbol of Bakyashil repelled it. Katu looks helplessly at the lowland thar. We have food for a few days now. They shrug and move to join the cartographer in striking camp. Let's see what truth there is to this painted castle. Then we can plan our journey home. They've no choice but to leave the remainder of the Ulanmor's corpse. Gemogen speaks a few quiet words of Thassa over a fist of earth, then pours the dirt over Tsasi's eyes. Once everything is packed up, Nariset hands around Suvlaki, chunks of fire-roasted meat on wooden skewers. Gemogen politely declines. At first, Yochi feels queasy looking at the stick in his hand. Horse meat wasn't regularly consumed in the city, being as it was far less plentiful than beef or pork, but he knew there was nothing wrong with it. He takes a nibble, and his reservations vanish. It's gamey and tough, but the fire smoke gave it enough flavor to be absolutely mouth-watering after two days of bone broth. Before he knows it, his skewer is stripped bare. Gemogen whistles, and Yochi climbs up onto the coach and urges the oxen forward. Nariset leads the way atop Golgyuk, torch in hand. They're fortunate that the wood isn't too dense. The oxen can wend their way between the trees without difficulty, and traveling by torchlight is not quite as terrible as Yochi feared it might be. The needle-strewn ground is smooth, and the foliage is distributed in almost orderly clumps. At times, Yochi thinks he can make out plotted ditches on either side, forming a purposeful path. But this may just be his imagination. The sky is beginning to color in with dawn when they break suddenly past the tree line into a wide clearing. The unearthly silence of the vale is broken by a bubble and hush of a stream. And some five hundred feet from them is the castle, a twenty-foot-tall foundation of masonry, upon which rests a multi-level geometric structure with balconies extending from the main building on every level. The sun had not quite broken over the ridge of the caldera to the east, but even in this anemic light the castle's color is vibrant. The walls are white, the balconies a rich mahogany, with golden balustrades and green banisters. Red arches are visible leading from the balconies into the castle interior, and three towers rise from the north, south, and eastern corners. Under better circumstances, the sight might have inspired the same kind of awe they'd felt upon first seeing the caldera, or upon emerging from the carved tunnel. But everyone is exhausted, having passed the threshold of momentum at least an hour prior. They blink blearily up at the wondrous building, and Yochi almost laughs at the contrast between its obvious magnificence and their party's stupefaction. Even Gemogen only musters a stoic there before extinguishing her torch and trudging on. The castle grows more resplendent with every new ray of light. As they approach, they see that the sounds of running water are coming from a creek that babbles and wends its way to their left, streaming down through a little gully before bending away from them to the northwest. The ground slopes up here, 
and as they crest the rise they see that the creek originates from the east, before being diverted into a moat around the castle. A dark wooden drawbridge lies flat across the moat ahead of them, and leads into a dim grey interior. They're all too tired for proper caution. Yochi glances at Katu, who observes from just behind him. No bloody apparitions? Katu asks. Yochi shakes his head. Without obstacle, Gemijin steps onto the drawbridge, and the wagons roll after her and into the courtyard beyond. Yochi leaps down from the coach and looks around them. The courtyard is small enough to feel almost like an atrium, lit naturally from above while also accepting light through cleverly designed arched stairways that pass all the way up and through the second and third levels of the castle to the balconies. Directly ahead is a grand entrance, twelve-foot-tall doors carved with intricate patterns and reinforced with burnished iron. To their left is a stable. To their right, what looks like a bare but functional bakehouse and kitchen. In the center of the courtyard is a marble plinth, set in a circular stone platform of sorts. The rest of the courtyard isn't paved. Yochi's boots make fine prints upon the packed black dirt that covers most of the area. How does it compare to Cella Celestia? Gemogen surveys the space, eyes lingering on the ornate columns, her arms akimbo. Katu frowns at the marble plinth. It's different. He looks up and away at the nearest wall of green, blue, and gold. But you know what? The colors feel familiar. The ceiling of the palazon is painted in a similar palette. Almost by force of habit, Yoshi leads the ox into the stables and begins roping them to stalls. There's no more sign of life in the castle than in the woods or fields around it, but the shelves are equipped, if sparsely, with the essential accoutrements of grooming, tacking, and cleaning. Yochi walks along the stalls holding a feed bag absently between his hands. Distracted, his toe catches on something in the dirt. He trips forward and lands upon his hands and knees. Oof! Yochi takes a breath, turns over, and looks at the small, curved edge of something that pokes up from the ground. He leans forward, and with some effort excavates a round, roughly disc-shaped stone. Caked in black dirt, it was about as big as Yochi's palm. Yochi? Yochi feels a flash of panic, and hurriedly shoves the stone into his feed bag. He looks up, as Gemogen steps into the shade of the stable, nested below the second floor of the castle. What happened? Are you alright? I fell. He looks at his deep brown hands daubed black from the digging. There was something odd about the texture of the dirt. It felt clean, as if the earth were mixed with fine sand and charcoal. I'm pretty exhausted. Gemogen nods. We all are. She looks at the tied-up oxen, then at the shelves of equipment. These stables are so pristine. It's like they were built yesterday. Yochi clutches the feed bag close feeling the outline of the strange stone within. He looks at a bristle brush resting on the shelf to his left. Well, everything that grows here is poison. Maybe that's something to do with it. Maybe time works differently here. Maybe living things, I mean, 
living, breathing things, can't survive in a place where the only thing that changes is a slight gathering of dust. So all that remains is a sort of elaborate set, a scene with no actors, a kind of mausoleum for a world that once was. Gemogen looks at Yochi strangely. Come on. We're making up our beds in the Great Hall. We'll sleep for a few hours and then go exploring. They sleep much longer than a few hours. Whether it was the exhaustion of battle, their unusually full stomachs, or something else altogether is hard to know. But when Yochi wakes, it is dark again. Late evening, by the look of the courtyard. Nariset, Gemogen, and Katu are still sleeping on the huge tables arrayed about the grand room. The Andersman's bag is empty, though. Yochi finds the cartographer journaling at a table in the bakehouse. Sensing Yochi's presence, the noble of Andor greets him without looking up. So much for exploring by daylight. Are the others awake? Yochi shakes his head. Alt finishes a sentence and blows on the ink before looking up and displaying a tight-lipped smile. Holy missions take a lot out of you, I suppose. Yochi slides onto the bench opposite Alt. Earlier, you said that I was cursed. What did you mean by that? Alt's face turns serious. What would you call it? Yochi shifts uncomfortably. I need your help. Why me? Your journal. That journal there burned me when I opened it the other night. There's magic. Real magic to you. I've never seen anything like it. Alt looks wary. What about your red-mouthed man? Yochi flinches. He wasn't used to hearing that name from people other than himself. The church has rituals. Purifications? For exercising darkness, doesn't it? I... What would it take you to perform one? A purification. On me. Yochi. I don't need a dead god or a lost god or whatever they are. I need help. I need a living, listening god. And that's what Deus is, right? Alt regards Yochi quietly for a moment. Finally, he closes his journal and stands. There's a storeroom down that hallway. We'll have some privacy. Wait for me there. I'll need a few minutes. Yochi goes and waits in the storeroom. It is a large space, as storerooms go, but windowless and dark. The floor is paved smooth with stone. The shelves, of course, are empty. Yochi keeps the door ajar and watches the crack of moonlight reflecting in through the kitchen. Many minutes go by, though probably fewer than they feel. Finally, candlelight replaces that of the moon, and Alt toes open the door and joins Yochi in the storeroom, a large case of some kind nestled under his candle-bearing arm, and a mug of tea in the other. Alt hands Yochi the tea. It's a... well, I don't know the word in Barashi, or Awanesh. Yochi and the cartographer had taken to speaking Barashi together when they were alone. It's a special tea that helps loosen your mind. Yochi drinks it down. 
The cartographer withdraws from his pack an oblong leather case, engraved all over with convoluted patterns of crystals and radial curves. With care, Alt undoes the iron buckles and folds back the cover of the case, revealing a number of small items carefully wrapped in cloth. One by one, he reveals a beeswax candle, a tinderbox, a grooved candle plate, a curved mirror, and a multifaceted crystal globe of some kind, hollow on the inside with one large opening and a pinpoint aperture on the other side. Yoti had never seen anything quite like it. The chromament is a form of communion with Deos through a bath of light, Alt says awkwardly. Yoshi rather likes that the Andrishman is so uncomfortable talking about religion. A normal human quirk. There are a number of associated practices. My mother taught me to meditate upon it. We were supposed to meditate once every twelve days. I've performed purifications, but never on anyone who really needed one. I've seen some that... Well... He runs a cloth over the mirror, though it already looks pristine. Some are quite spectacular. He fits the mirror into one side of the candle plate, and affixes the candle to the spike at its center. With the tinderbox, he sets fire to a wooden splint, and transfers the flame to light the candle. Yochi watches the candle flicker against the mirror, reflected in eerie definition. Alt carefully wraps the tinderbox, and replaces it in the chromament case. Are you ready? How could one ready for the unknowable? Yochi feels a sort of wobbly sensation in his abdomen. He nods. Fix your eyes on the mirror. Yochi does so. With some difficulty. The mirror swims away from him for a moment before coming to a stop. Alt speaks a phrase in Andrish and lowers the hollow crystal over the candle. The mirror flashes white, and Yochi's stomach drops as if he'd been pushed out of a tree. He blinks, disoriented, and finds himself surrounded by an aura of shifting light. How much of this was the effect of the tea? Yochi squints, trying to focus. The mirror reflects the refracted candlelight with a seemingly impossible brightness. He can just barely make out Alt's dark figure beyond it. Alt! The figure moves indistinctly. Is it Alt? A chill runs down Yochi's spine. Suddenly, he isn't so sure. Nephew? <gasps> Uncle Cotter? My boy. My poor little creature. Is this really happening? Yochi leans forward and strains his eyes, but he can't seem to make out anything more than the dark outline of his uncle beyond the halo of kaleidoscopic light. You have questions. Y yes Yochi stammers. So many questions, Cotter. Where did you go? Are you alive? Don't you think we should start with the important questions? Cotter sounds annoyed. I can see the cracks in you. I know why you have called upon me. Yochi trembles. He casts his eyes away from the shadow of his uncle 
and his vision is immediately obscured by a cascade of shifting colors projected from the chromament. Am I? Is there something wrong with me? Yes. Yochi shakes. He breathes rapidly. He nods. Uncle, am I... cursed? Yes. Yochi gulps down tears. Why? Evil does not discriminate. In fact, it is the most righteous souls that the devil grasps for first. So I... the red-mouthed man... The red-mouthed man is nothing. He is only a face for that which resides deep within you. You are the carrier, the source, the vector of destruction. Yochi is openly crying now. I don't understand. You mean I'm, I'm making these things happen? That is the nature of the evil within you. Yochi sobs. Cotter, are Mum and Da okay? Mum and Da are dead, Yochi. And as long as your friends are close, so too will they perish and die. Cotter. Yochi has to take several deep breaths before he can speak again. I'm a good person, Uncle. The shadowy profile of his uncle shifts its weight beyond the chromament. What can I do? Nothing, my nephew. There is nothing to be done in the face of such great power. And he's gone. The light retreats from Yochi's periphery, and there is Alt, staring at him from across the embering candle wick as he lifts the crystal away. Are you all right? What did you see? Yochi looks at the cartographer. He wipes the tears from his eyes and looks past the man to the door, thinking of Nariset, Katu, and Gemogen, perhaps still sleeping in the great hall beyond. Nothing. Alt's eyebrow twitches with suspicion. The light only showed me how tired I am. He stands. I think I'll check on the oxen one last time and go back to bed. Yochi, of all the purifications I've performed, I... Saw something pass through you. What happened? Yochi feels an unexpected rush of anger. But he shakes it off and shakes his head at Alt. That scrap of vellum in the front of your journal? It's from the same text as Gimogen's pages, isn't it? Alt stiffens. Yochi laughs humorlessly. <laughs> you should show it to her, Alt. Whatever you're looking for. She stands the best chance of helping you find it. He leaves. Yochi tries not to think about the way Alt fumbles over the chromament, wrapping the crystal and candle plate hurriedly as Yochi passes out of the storeroom. He walks by the great hall, where the others still rest. He steps into the shifting shadows of the stables and rubs his hand over Gusnav's snout, who moves in appreciation. The animal's hair feels especially rough against his hand, and for a moment he thinks he can see the veins pulsing beneath the bull's face. His stomach turns suddenly, and he retches. Bile splatters on the ground. His chest heaves, 
his hands clench around his knees. He backs away and falls against the nearest wooden pillar. He slides down its smooth surface to the ground, the stables swimming in front of him. He presses the heels of his palms to his forehead, trying to steady himself. He sits this way for a while, an hour, maybe more, trying to reason his way out of the inevitable. Finally, he stands. The dark shapes in the stables have steadied. He pulls his pack off the wall. It didn't have much, a change of clothes, a pack of smoked meat, and a feed bag with the odd stone in it, and looks down the row of stalls. His mind races in circles, but something points ahead, something that knows what has to be done. He saddles Golgiuk, places a foot in the stirrup, and swings his leg over the palfrey's back. He guides the horse out of the stable, and with a hya, he breaks Golgiuk into a canter, and they ride across the drawbridge, into the woods, and away. This was episode four of the Oa Oligar, and of season two of Thomas Tells a Story. The show is written and created by myself, Thomas Constantine Moore, and our theme music is by Joe Mendick. Yochi is voiced by Heron Atkins, Gemogen by Molly Griggs, Katu by Jeffrey Omura, Nariset by Alexis Floyd, and the cartographer by Heath Saunders. Thank you for listening. This story will continue in the next moon. Hey there, it's me again. If you love this show and want to keep it going, one of the best things you can do is spread the word and tell your friends. You can also follow us on Twitter at TTAS Podcast or join the community on Reddit at r slash Thomas Tells. But most importantly, this season, you actually get to influence the events of the story. After episode three, you voted for Yochi to tell everyone about the red-mouthed man and to ask the cartographer for help. As a result, the party learned of Yochi's strange haunting, and Alt performed a purification on Yochi, revealing a figment of his uncle Cotter, who tells Yochi that the red-mouthed man not only warns him of disaster, but actively draws it to him. You also voted for Yochi to keep the strange rock, but then you didn't actually have a say about that one, did you? There are three new choices to be made after episode four, so go to our website at thomastellsastory.com slash next right now and vote on what you want to see happen in episode five. And don't forget, lives may hang in the balance.